This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Now, when I say my wife is really chill and up for anything, she is, and that's why it made such a difference to me when she said, you know what, you can do what you want, but if you're still in the same denomination by summer, you'll be in an interfaith marriage. Mm. And because she doesn't give any ultimatums <laughs> in any other time, I was like, whoa, this is really serious. This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Ross Sulberry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. This week, I want to share my conversation with Dr. Russell Moore. Dr. Moore is a minister, public theologian, host of The Russell Moore Show, and editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. He has served previously as the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and before that, as the chief academic officer and dean of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can find out more about Dr. Moore by clicking the links in the show notes or by visiting whereyoufrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from.org. Please join me as I ask Dr. Russell Moore, where you're from. I'm from uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, which is on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, right out from New Orleans. Mm. That's where I grew up. And we live now in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. So for those who may be uninitiated with Biloxi, paint us a picture. Uh, When most people think of Mississippi, they're thinking of Tupelo, Jackson, sort of northern Mississippi, northern to us. Anything above I-10 is northern Mississippi to us. Well, (laughs) where we were from, though, is very different. It's much more New Orleans than it is the rest of Mississippi. And so a really large immigrant community, Slavic immigrants and then later Vietnamese immigrants in the seafood industry, seafood is – one of the major industries there, along with tourism. And then now, casino gambling Mm. that came in legally in the 90s, but had been going on (laughs) for a long time before that. (laughs) Gotcha. So I remember the movie Biloxi Blues Mm -hmm. and and the phrase Africa hot. It's it's hot. So is the heat something that you remember fondly or at all? You know, it's kind of like if you grew up in Minnesota, you don't really notice the fact that it's Arctic. I mean, we knew that it was hot, but I don't think we actually knew how hot it was. Mm. It would be quite an adjustment Mm. for people, not just with the heat, but with the humidity, which again, uh, we didn't really notice just because that was all we'd ever known. (laughs) I never saw snow until I was a grown man. Mm. 
as a matter of fact, I was married by the time I saw snow for the first wow. time. Wow. So. Yeah. So, yeah, that is deep, deep south. So, tell us a little bit about your family. Uh, how did they end up in Biloxi or how long were they there and all that? My uh, grandfather was a pastor. He was pastor of the church I grew up in, although mm-hmm. he had retired from that before I was born. And my father, he was in the car business. He had been in the FBI before that. And he was from a Protestant evangelical background. My mother was from a Roman Catholic background. And we lived right next door to my grandmother, who was a really big influence on my life. And we lived very close to my other two grandparents. So we had a a really connected sort of family. Hmm. So how did y'all end up deciding where y'all went to church? (laughs) Well, that was sort of pre-negotiated, I think, by my parents (laughs) before we came along. And my mother was always at church with us. So she was not an unwilling participant, any of that. Gotcha. And then you said us. So what was the birth order and sibling situation? I'm the oldest, and I have two younger brothers, one who's about a little over two years younger and the other who's seven years younger. Okay. So does the birth order stereotypes kind of hold true? I think it kind of does, at least for a while. I mean, I think that I was definitely sort of driven and 70 years old at 12, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. And the middle child is very much the kind of daredevil in the family, somebody who does base jumping and (laughs) skydiving and all of that kind of thing. And the, the youngest, he is the person that makes people the happiest, literally of anybody I know. Mm. I told my wife one time, if I'm ever in a deep, deep depression, get me with Greg for mm. for a little while because he's just able to, to draw that out of people. Wow. So you got the two brothers, grandpa. When he retired, who became the pastor at the church he started? Uh, well, there were a succession of pastors. I knew quite a few pastors because they would stay not very long. They would say two or three years until a pastor who was really influential in in my life named M.L. Thaler came along, and he stayed for a long time. Okay. He had this ability to have a kind of authority and a kind of tranquility. Mm -hmm. He was one of those guys that nothing threw him, and there was something really important about that for our church, that he was able to sort of lead with a kind of maturity. He he didn't seem panicked by anything. Hmm. Why was that so important, you think, for your church at the time? Well, I think because, you know, apparently there were, as in every church, some sort of behind-the-scenes drama that those of us sort of out front uh, in the congregation couldn't really see. And sometimes you would have pastors or leaders in other contexts I've seen who've become so alarmed by that when it would happen that they would kind of either withdraw or they would go into this sort of always on alert kind of posture. Mm -hmm. And he never did. I mean, he, he never seemed angry at anybody and he never seemed scared. Okay. And I think it was not rooted in any kind of bravado. I think he just really did have a sense of who he was and what he was called to do and a trust in God that was just really deep. Mm. 
So you talk about in your latest book, uh, Losing Our Religion, that you were the kid carrying the Christian flag down the aisle at Vacation Bible School's opening assembly. Yeah. How did you get in that position? And, and tell us a little bit more about what it was like, how important the church played a role in your life growing up. Well, I mean, Vacation Bible School to us was uh, almost a liturgical act. I mean, I, I think it, it filled the space that the Christian calendar does for people in other uh, traditions because there was a regularity and a rhythm to it, and there also was a deep seriousness to it. So, I mean, we would line up and march in to Onward Christian Soldiers into the uh, sanctuary every day, Vacation Bible School. One of us would carry the American flag, one would carry the Christian flag, one would carry the Bible. We would pledge allegiance to all three uh, in order. And there was quite a bit of gravity to it at the time. I I remember a sense of being a part of something really important and significant. Okay, yeah, that is not the picture that I had in mind that my daughter was going to with kind of a more laid back, kind of fun, yeah. you know, kind of, I guess, like things evolved in that way. Yeah, <laughs> it was It was really, and I think there's probably something gained with that shift, but there was a lot lost too. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for instance, I remember the first time that I was just as a volunteer, as an adult at a vacation Bible school, and the pastor's there in a t-shirt with whatever that year's theme was, singing silly songs and whatever. And I thought, you know, there was something important about the fact that our pastor was there in a suit, just like he always was. And I think what was important about that is that he was communicating with that. I don't think intentionally, but it's just it's just the way it happened. He was communicating, and everybody who was working in Vacation Bible School, they were communicating, you are really a part of this congregation, and you have responsibilities that we're preparing you to take on. And so there was nothing patronizing hmm. about it. We we were being treated as part of the church in, in a way that I think was important for me. Was your involvement uh, at such a young age reflective of your parents' and siblings' no. involvement as well? No, not at all. My parents would go on Sunday mornings, and my dad not always, and he would sort of cycle in and out. But my grandmother was the one who made sure that I was there for Sunday school, morning worship, then we would have youth choir, then something called training union, and then discipleship training, which is kind of Sunday school at night, then evening worship, Mm. then Wednesday night prayer meeting, and we had something called Royal Ambassadors, which is, is kind of almost like a Boy Scout's for our denomination, except that it was built around missions and learning about missions and and supporting that. So all of those things, I mean, my week was built around all of that. And then in the youth group, it would also include, I mean, there would be something every Friday or Saturday night, and then Tuesdays and Thursdays, the what they called the Family Life Center, the gym was just sort of opened up, and all of us would just 
hang out there. Hmm. And so there really was not a day that I wasn't <laughs> involved in some way with my church in any given week. Wow. You said that was a significant part of your grandmother's uh, role mm-hmm. in your life. Tell us a little bit about her. She was a pastor's wife, a pastor's widow. She sort of was a classic kind of Great Depression as a child mm-hmm. person who had multiple deep freezes filled with food just in case <laughs> and, <laughs> and was scrupulous about uh, saving her money and was very active and involved in our congregation and always had been. And because she had been the pastor's wife, She had a certain sense of significance in the congregation. I mean, I think she had a connection to people that was deeper than maybe it would have been if she hadn't been pastor's wife at one time. Mm -hmm. And how about with you? What were your relationship like? Well, we were very close. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that my grandfather died when I was five years old. Mm -hmm. And so she was very much a part of our immediate family, not just extended family. She was part of the immediate family. And so she was involved in every part of our life. And she and I were very close and and remained very close until her death in 2016. And for a long time, even after that, I would find myself starting to call her Mm. and then realizing, oh, wait, she can't. She's not here. Wow. And so it sounds like then you didn't really mind the full-blown church participation that you were experiencing. Oh, no, I loved it. And I could have opted out mm. at any point. My brothers certainly did not have that kind of—I mean, they, they were part of the church, but not like that. I loved it. I loved the congregation. I loved the people there. I really respected the men in our congregation with the way that they would take up offering and lead in prayers and organize mm-hmm. together when somebody's house had burned down or those sorts of things, I really respected them. Mm. Yeah, that's such a cool story. You you often hear folks who have been very much in church almost every day during the week kind mm-hmm. of looking upon that, almost having some sense of trauma attached yeah. to it. But yeah. it's interesting to hear like that that was something that spoke to you that you enjoyed and that you kind of very much opted into at an early age. Yeah, and I think part of that is because one of the things that I realize more and more every year that I get older is how well my parents handled things. You know, when you're a kid, you don't know any different. You you just Mm -hmm. know your own family. And I look back and say, you know, they really were very chill when it came to a sort of legalism and that kind of thing, which was all around me. And so Mm -hmm. we had parameters and we had stability, but we did not have that. So I never felt as though I was being forced into some sort of religious identity or anything like that. It was just never the case. And I think probably if I had been, it might have sent me in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And you talk about in your book that you had a pretty pivotal moment, even maybe crisis at age of 15. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I mean, at 15, I was looking around, not so much at my church, but I was looking around at Bible Belt culture generally. And I mean, of course, one thing about where I grew up, it was majority Roman Catholic. Those of us who were Protestants were in the minority, but we were kind of a a minority in a little island that then 
completely outside of that is this big, massive landmass of Bible Belt uh, America. And so that was causing me to say, maybe uh, when I would see sort of a growing politicization of the church, when I started to see some scandals that were going on in ways that seemed to have very different standards for the outside world than for those who were inside the church. And then when I was seeing racism the way that I did, I started to wonder, well, maybe this is all just really politics and Mm -hmm. Southern culture. And Jesus is kind of a hood ornament on the top Mm -hmm. of all of that. And so that was a, a really disturbing sort of thought and one that I couldn't just say, Maybe. Uh, (laughs) Instead, it just, it really sent me into a crisis where I was wondering all of that. And I don't think that there's anybody except for my youth pastor who would have even known that that was going on. I I don't think my parents knew it. I don't think my grandmother knew it. I don't think my friends knew it. My youth pastor did because I told him. But I just sort of worked through that on my own. And I think that was important for me to work through that on my own. And so I had uh, read the Chronicles of Narnia so many times as a little kid that I recognized C.S. Lewis's name on the spine of a book in the bookstore. And I just bought it, took it home. It was mere Christianity. And that was really pivotal for me. And as I, I mentioned in the book, it wasn't because of the arguments, because my problems were not intellectual. It wasn't that I was saying, oh, I can't believe in the virgin birth or anything like that. It was that there was something about kind of the tone of voice that comes through the written word there, where he was clearly not trying to market anything to me or to mobilize me for anything. He was just saying, here's what I've seen. Mm. And he laid it out. And that was really important for me. And I think that was important for a couple reasons. I mean, one of those things is it's kind of like having a vaccination where you get a little bit of a disease to the point that you can have antibodies built up. Mm. I think it's one of the reasons why I never went through a time of sort of losing my faith or even almost losing my faith as an adult because I really had already worked through Mm. all of those things and I knew what it was that I believed. And the other part of it is I think it gave me an awareness of those 15-year-olds like I was uh, who are also, I mean, uh, again, nobody knew I was going through that. And I know there are a lot of people who are sorting through, is any of this real, that aren't saying that. They're not you know, raising their hand and asking those questions. They're just working all that through internally. And so my entire ministry has had an awareness of those people, and I think it was because of that. Man, thank you for sharing. There's so much in that story I can relate to in terms of picking up mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I think there was something about, in Lewis's writing, him clearly honoring the questions Mm -hmm. and concerns of his audience and taking them seriously and not kind of hiding behind a certain kind of, I guess, moral authority of the church to say, well, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Right. It was very much taking arguments at face value and, and exploring it. And that that also a uh, little bit later, more like when I was 17, 18. But I am curious to kind of rewind because for someone who had been so involved in the church, like 
what specifically were you seeing that caused this, you know, kind of uh, questioning in a deep way? Well, I mean, I, I was seeing classic Southern racism all mm-hmm. around me. And of course, this was in this time period that is, you know, of course, post-civil rights era, but Mississippi lingered. I mean, my elementary school was integrated when I was in the fourth grade. Wow. And I mean, that was in the 80s. So it was, uh, I mean, you think about Brown v. Board was in 1954. Mm. So it was taking 30 years for, for even the most minimal structures to change. And certainly attitudes had not changed. I mean, and in ways that I think, I remember being a little kid and being in Sunday school, and one of the things that we had at our church and in all of the churches in our tradition was a an offering envelope, and you would bring your you know your quarter or your dimes or whatever in your offering envelope and and give it. And I had taken mine out, took a quarter out, and I'd put it in my mouth. And the teacher came up and said, "Don't put the quarter in your mouth," which of course is a completely reasonable thing to say. <laughs> but the reasoning she gave for that is, for all you know, a black man could have had that, wow. could have touched that. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, even then, how I'm just not sure this really lines up with what we're singing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Right. And I think uh, as time went on, I recognized that sort of thing as she was not somebody who was plotting in a lair. I'm going to smuggle in white supremacy in to these children when they're young enough. She was completely oblivious to the fact that I, mean, I don't think she would have even known that that would make an impression on anybody mm. at all. And I think that over time started giving me some awareness of the way that cultures can work in hiding from oneself. Mm a lot of the things that are toxic because they seem normal. I hear that. And I think as an adult, someone who's studied culture, society, sociology and all that, I can grasp that. Mm -hmm. What seems to be intriguing is that you're picking up on that because a lot of people don't. Like, what do you think was happening that caused you to be more aware and sensitive to these inconsistencies? I don't know, but I suspect, and this is all I can do is to suspect, that a lot of it had to do with reading. Mm -hmm. And um, I was very involved with reading. And by that, I mean things like comic books and children's books and, and all kinds of other things in a way that it wasn't that I was being educated by those things. Because again, I'm talking about you know, uncanny X-Men. I'm not talking about <laughs> Dostoevsky right. uh, at that age. And But I think there was something about from a very early age learning to recognize a plot. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I would have ever said that. Then I've never said that. I mean, I've never really thought about it till now. But I think that was a big part of it, being able to recognize a plot and being able to see Here's where I think this is headed. I think that that probably is where some of that came from. I'm curious, too. I mean, I, I think that is a, a interesting layer to it, but I still think there's more. <laughs> well, and I, I will say this. Yeah. You know, I do think part of what was more is the fact that my dad did not have the same 
racial attitudes as a typical Mississippian. Got it. You know, he had been in the FBI in the 60s, so he was not in step with Mississippi of his time or of, of our time. And it wasn't that he said anything about that. It was just the absence of it mm. in a way that I think was important. And then my mother... Her parents had migrated to the coast from Waterloo, Iowa, Mm. sometime back in the late 40s, late 50s. But I think they were kind of a break from the Confederate history of the rest of my my family. And I think that probably had an impact. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That is interesting. It's funny when you say... FBI in the 60s, because depending on <laughs> the the job, that could have gone either way, right? Well, um, yeah, and, but with his specifically, it was anti-Klan stuff. So oh. that, that's what he was concerned about was- Wait, so your dad was actually involved in anti-Klan FBI? Somehow, and he never talked about it except hmm. for one time. Wow. <laughs> Literally one time. He was a good FBI agent. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> I'm curious. What did he say that one time when he talked about it? He just was talking about working somehow. And again, I don't know exactly how, but on the Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney mm-hmm. murders that would have happened in Neshoba County in 1964, which is when he was active and involved. That was the basis for the uh, Mississippi Burning uh-huh. film, right? Yeah. But other than that, I mean, it, it might as well have never even happened because he didn't talk about it. And I I would always think, you know, one day I'm going to sit down and just have a whole series of questions to ask him. And I never did. Mm. Got it. Got it. So already, you, you know, you've mentioned you're intellectually curious. At this point, someone could say even devout. How was that received by your family and even classmates, you know, outside of the kind of Christian spaces that you were in? Oh, perfectly fine. You know, as a matter of fact, when I hear from people who had really bad sort of middle school, high school kinds of experiences, I realize I was in a really good situation. Hmm. I mean, I think that all of us Catholic, evangelical, and unbelievers there got along really well. So I never felt the least bit odd or strange about being a Christian, even around my friends who weren't. Got it. So you you have this moment of reckoning, you know, you read mere Christianity. So as a result of your faith being, I guess, more fortified, like what becomes the trajectory? How does that impact what comes next for you? Well, I um, was headed in a political direction, and so I was really active and involved in campaigns and things, even as a, a high schooler. And I was really involved as a volunteer for a candidate for United States Congress, Gene Taylor, who lost. But he did better than people thought he would do. And then the person who won eight months later was killed in a plane crash. Wow. And there was a special election, and Gene was elected that time. Mm. And so I started out interning with him and then ultimately went on staff with him and ultimately became his campaign communications director. And so I was headed for that kind of life until I started reconsidering and re, being redirected toward a, an earlier felt called a ministry. Okay. And you talk about that in your book as kind of this 
another altar call that you, uh-huh. that you have. You know, tell us about that. How old were you and, and what were the circumstances surrounding that call? Well, I was very young when I first thought that I was being called to ministry. And I went to talk to my pastor about it. And I expected him to pray with me and just sort of to be there with me through it. And he said, okay, well, three weeks from now, you're going to preach. We have a youth night, you're going to preach, and I'm going to show you how. And I was like, I'm not called to preach now. (laughs) I mean, when I'm grown up. And he said, yeah, but I'm going to teach you how to do this. And so we did. But then as time went on, I think probably not as a result of that crisis, but at the same time, when I came out of the crisis, I came out of it a stronger Christian, but I came out of it kind of running toward Jesus, but running away from ministry, if that makes Mm. sense. Hmm. And I think that had to do with the fact that in our church, I saw a really good, especially one really good model of ministry. But in other churches around me, I was seeing really awful models of ministry. And I started thinking, you know, that's not what I could do. So I started moving away from that. And really until, I mean, I was in D.C. at at the Library of Congress, and they would have these discard books that you could take whatever you wanted. And I had a stack of books that I was taking back to my office. And one of them was a manual on weddings and funerals. And it was just one of those where you're quickly getting the things you want. And I came home and thought, why did I want that? And that really prompted a long time of sort of rethinking and reconsidering what God was calling me to do. When we come back, Dr. Moore will share how the response of his denomination's leaders to revelations of sex abuse within his faith community forced him into one of the hardest decisions of his life. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. Hey, y'all, before we get back to my conversation with Dr. Russell Moore, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Tony Collier. This is where you're from. I never had enough confidence to leave for myself. But when my little girl came, I remember... We were driving in the car on the way to an Easter service and we had gotten into some kind of argument, probably about time, because I love to be on time. And my ex-husband just didn't really care. (laughs) And he started yelling in the car and screaming and cursing. And I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw fear in my daughter's eyes for the first time. And I just was like, I think I'm done. Because what I thought was maybe I'm not worthy of like a new life and another opportunity, but she really is. Now let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Russell Moore on where you're from. How old are you at this point? You're in D.C., I'm guessing, with Gene Taylor as part of this Mm -hmm. staff team. 
Yeah, I was early 20s at that point. Okay. Did you uh, go to college first before you? No. What I did, I went to college, but I had a very weird college experience because I was working for Gene and going to school at the University of Southern Mississippi at the same time. So I was kind of blowing in and out, doing my coursework while I'm, you know, organizing campaign events and picking you know, <laughs> that's sort of, it was a really bizarre uh, sort of a life. I mean, my now wife, some of our first dates, she was going with me to campaign fundraisers all around the congressional district and that sort of thing, which, you know, now we realize <laughs> that's really weird. But at the time, it didn't seem to be. Again, right. I was 70 at 12. So they, you know, the other day, my son who's 18, was driving to Cleveland because he was going to this concert he wanted to go to, and he's super responsible, and he's great. But I was worried. And I said, I'm just worried about being that, you know, driving that far by himself. And my wife said, when you were his age, you were literally running a United States Congress campaign. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay, yeah. He's not as little as I think he is. And and I got to kind of rewind and go, what was it? How did you meet Gene Taylor? And what was it? Was it uh, unusual for him to give you that opportunity? I was a page in the state okay. Senate. He was a state senator first. And I was a volunteer, you know, stuffing envelopes and that sort of thing on his campaign. And so then it sort of moved to a summer internship that just didn't end. <laughs> And so it kind of moved from one thing to another. Got it. And he is one of the people that I respect more than anybody else. Our youngest son is named for him, is mm. Taylor Eugene. And he was, I mean, among those figures that I think was really important, I could not overestimate how important he was. And part of that was because I could see him in situations where he just wouldn't yield his conscience. He was mm. out of step with his own party in a lot of <laughs> ways, and he was of a different party than the majority of people in the congressional district. And he just never bent. Mm. I mean, he really did what he thought was right. There were other congressional staffers and before that interns who would be kind of embarrassed of the members of Congress that they worked for because they could see the fits of rage or the affairs or whatever was going on. And I never had to because I was like, he is the exact same person you know, in, in public and in the car afterward with the exception that he might be better. Mm. You know, and, and I, I thought about that when I was talking to somebody who had worked for John Stott, the pastor in, in London. And I just said, you know, in a day when we have so many heroes that are collapsing, I said, please don't tell me that John Stott was. Mm. And he said he was a completely different person in public and in private. And I thought, oh. And he said because he was so much better in private. Mm. I mean, he was as much as you saw in public, it was even better behind the scenes. And that was the case with Gene. That's great. So after that uh, time in D.C., what happens next for you? Got married, went to seminary, and uh, went to New Orleans Seminary and served a church the whole time that I was in seminary in Biloxi. So I would just drive back and forth. So I didn't have a traditional seminary experience either because mm -hmm. I started as interim 
youth pastor, and then I became youth pastor, and then I became associate pastor. So I was really occupied with our congregation, which it was the best ministry experience that I have ever had. Hmm. It was near the Air Force Base, and it was a congregation that was virtually entirely Air Force, either active duty or retired. Hmm. So you didn't have the kinds of power structures, even in my home church. It was a good church, but you had the sort of, my grandma put that table there, you can't move it, or whatever. None of that happened because the whole congregation would turn over by a third every year. And the people, because they were Air Force and they were accustomed to moving a lot, they would make immediate connections and would immediately get involved. Mm. And so it was a really good congregation, and we served with them until we left. I graduated seminary and then went and uh, started my doctorate in Louisville, and we left at that point. But it was hard to leave because I could have stayed there my entire life. We love those people so much. Yeah, that sounds like I can relate to these kind of seasons of ministry where it's just like the right place, the right situation, and fruitfulness, and it's a mutual joy, right? Mm -hmm. So I think in light of that type of oasis, what was it that— you were hearing that caused you to sense it's time for me to move on and pursue this doctorate? I don't really know. It's one of those things where kind of when I look back on it, I don't remember ever making the decision to get a PhD. I mean, I'm sure I did, but it seems like it just happened. Mm. And that's just where we ended up. I don't even know really how that happened. That was a big part of it was saying, I really don't want to leave this ministry situation. Mm. How did your wife feel about that transition as well? My wife is so chill that she just is kind of up for anything. Mm. And so, you know, when I say, hey, I think we ought to look at Louisville, Kentucky, she was like, okay. (laughs) And and she's more or less that way with everything. She's just not a very anxious sort of person. Yeah. You know, I guess in some ways, if she survived the first date being a a campaign (laughs) for a politician, (laughs) then, you know, that that was a harbinger thing. Yeah, she can't say (laughs) she didn't know what she was signing up for. That is true. (laughs) So Louisville is a little bit further from Mm -hmm. Biloxi than New Orleans, you know, Mm -hmm. is and whatnot. What was that? new experience like for you? Uh, it was it was different from Biloxi and New Orleans, also different from Washington, right. the other place that I had lived, because in Washington, I kind of had a, a nucleus of South Mississippians, because we were all there, you know, right. working on. And so this really did feel like kind of being out on my own mm-hmm. in one sense, in, in a different way, because... Louisville is technically the South, but it's not the South. I mean, Louisville is a Midwestern city. And so there were all of those things to kind of work through. But we had, again, a really good experience and time there. You know, I hadn't had a traditional college experience, hadn't had a traditional MDiv seminary experience. But with my PhD, I was on the campus and made deep friendships, many of of which were lifelong. Mm. And that really bonded a group of us together. I was teaching Sunday school and serving in church, and it was a good experience. I taught three different adult Sunday school classes during the 16 years that we were there in Louisville, and I still keep in touch with most of those people. I mean, uh, most of them. Wow. And uh, what was your degree in? 
uh, systematic theology. Okay. So what were some of the reasons that prompted that particular discipline? I think because in systematic theology, you kind of have a convergence of several different things that I was interested in. So there's the biblical aspect of it. Then there's the historical aspect of it. There's the philosophical aspect. So all of those things kind of converged at systematic theology. And my at least initial supervising professor, a scholar by the name of Craig Blazing, when I went to you know interview for the program, he said, okay, well, I work in patristics and eschatology. So if you're not interested in either of those, don't even bother. Hmm. And I said, I'm interested in eschatology. So that was the direction my dissertation went, really because of that. <laughs> and eschatology, that doesn't seem like on the surface in terms of how it's commonly understood to fit the bill of someone who's had interest in politics and who's had interest in these very kind of more earthy, practical issues of life. But how did you see those things come together? Well, the area I was working in is the application of ideas about the kingdom of God to social and political engagement. Ah, And so it was working on a model of evangelical eschatology that really does understand the tension between the already and the not yet. Got you. So it was kind of very intentionally looking at what can oftentimes been kind of seen as a divorce. Yeah. Give us a word on that. Like, how do you see that sometimes the practical implications of eschatology are missed? And how do you see them as something that are very much should be interwoven with our understanding of the kingdom and and who we are as believers. Well, I've changed my mind some since those days because what I was arguing is that eschatological views affect then the way that somebody sees society and politics and changes the way that we engage. I actually would say now it's the other way around. And so it's not as much that there's a critique of, of you know, people are so otherworldly. They, they see the kingdom as being so far off that they don't understand what's going on around them. I actually think it's not that there's too much otherworldliness in most cases. It's just another kind of carnality. Mm. So often the social and political engagement comes first in somebody's mind, and then there's an eschatology built around it. And often the way that eschatology is built is in order to tell people where their consciences can be protected from Jesus. You look at 19th century arguments about slavery. It's, oh, no, no, that's a political issue. The church is spiritual. We don't deal with that. Or in Jim Crow era Mississippi, oh, well, that, that's political if we're talking about Jim Crow. Of course, they're talking about gambling and uh, alcohol prohibition and everything else. But you're able to sort of categorize out the things that you don't want to deal with Mm. as being something else. And I've seen that pattern happen all of my life. That's what I've been dealing with. So I, I think the other thing is a properly grounded eschatology, I think, helps to rescue somebody even either from a kind of utopianism that expects idealized perfection. And that ends up in cynicism, Hmm. because then when whatever the utopia is doesn't happen, there's disillusionment and disappointment. Or there are all kinds of moral adjustments somebody can make to get to that utopia. 
I mean, think of the Soviet Union. You know, we're getting to a classless society, and we've got to break a few eggs to make that omelet. So it protects you from that, and it also protects you from this sort of apocalypticism that does the same thing, just in the other direction. To say, well, there's a golden age back there in the past, and somebody's keeping us away from it, and we've got to get back to Mm. it, and the stakes are so high that we can morally adjust in order to get there. And I think a biblical eschatology... You know, from Augustine on, from Irenaeus on, really, is calling us away from all of that. Yeah, and this is something, you know, you've written and I think have thought deeply about. You write in your book, the reality is complicated, a theology shaped by a culture and a culture shaped by a theology. And you kind of talk about how you got caught up in the some of the crosswinds of those shifts. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, how I got caught up in the crosswinds <laughs> of the yeah. shift. Well, I mean, I think there are a number of flashpoints that have mm-hmm. that have happened over the past several years. So you could basically categorize them in my life, at least, in terms of nationalism, race questions, and then gender and abuse questions. And when you look at where are the division points in American society, at least right now, it really does fall into those three categories. Right. And I guess specifically, just to kind of fast forward in your story a little bit, you end up becoming the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Yes. Which, how would you describe the focus of that Did two things. One was to sort of equip churches to think through moral issues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everything from bioethics to everything that's about kind of moral and ethical questions. And then secondly, to speak from the churches to the outside world. So we were working with government, with media, and with cultural institutions on those things that that we believe to be important. So, sounds like a pretty controversy-less type of position. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was my dream job since I was 19 years old. I thought really? I would love to do that, and I ended up doing that, and it was my dream job. I loved doing the job, and I loved the people that I was working with, both in terms of my staff and our board. Phenomenal people. But... You know, my predecessor in that role, who, you know, sees things differently than than I do on a lot of things, but was really good to me, said, here's the situation. You're going to have 30% of the people furious with you all the time, just by the nature of the job. And the problem with it is that the 30% will move around. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like you can say, okay, there's the 30%. Let me, it, it, it sort of is is always shifting just because you can't avoid speaking to issues that are right at the surface level of what people care about. So if you think about in terms of kind of uh, systematic theology, you have to show people why these things are important and why they're relevant to their lives while you're discipling them mm-hmm. on what that should look like. In these cases, you're dealing with things people already believe to be hugely important. Sometimes they believe to be more important than they actually are, Mm -hmm. and they already have very fiery views on those things usually. Got it. And so you find yourself, and I don't know when would be the flashpoint of flashpoints for you, but clearly in 2016, there's, I guess, before the election, in part of what it means to be leading in the church a voice about ethics, make some statements about 
moral leadership. Walk us through what that was like for you personally, and did you anticipate what happened next? Yes, I did anticipate what happened next, and that's what I was worried about. I mean, I started in uh, really 2014 in this particular case because there was a flashpoint controversy about Ebola victims that happened even before the election started. But certainly once the election started, I was very clear on what I thought and what I feared here. And one of the things that I feared was you had a lot of people in my community who would say, well, you know, we're not endorsing all of this. We're just sort of choosing the lesser of two evils. And one of the things I was worried about is that the way that partisanship works in America now, there is no category for people who are able to say, I'm with this party 51% of the time and with the other party 49% of the time, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the ideas tend to follow where one's sense of belonging is and political parties are key sources right now of belonging and of identity. So I was worried that that was going to happen and it did. I mean, you can just look at the polling data on what evangelical Christians thought about character in uh, leadership in 2015 and what they think about it now. And it's completely flipped and turned around. So that was where I was concerned. And then after the 2016 election, I said, I hope that four years from now, we can say that I was completely wrong about this. And I really did hope that. Mm. So that's kind of one of the punches. But then you also write in your book that a breaking point came when an investigative journalist published a report demonstrating cases of hundreds of people sexually abused and assaulted, along with multiple allegations of churches having covered up such abuses. In attempting to address accountability, we face stonewalling and retaliation. And you kind of talk about being in this come to Jesus meeting, Mm -hmm. but... It's a different type of meeting than how you anticipated. Talk to us about that. Yeah, there were a lot of those come to Jesus meetings. Sometimes they would go eight hours at a time. Oh, gosh. You know, and they would be about different things. But the thing that was really shocking for me is I think I had the misunderstanding that when it came to sexual abuse, that almost everybody, except for actual predators— Everybody wanted to do the right thing and just didn't know how to do it. Mm. And what I discovered in that process was that that was not the case. Mm. And that often those of us who said we have to reform the institutions and we have to deal with these issues head on would face all kinds of retaliation. And it usually didn't present itself as being about that, except in private. Mm. It would present itself in public as being about something else. And my situation was nothing compared to actual sexual abuse survivors who would speak out. And I have seen one after the other of them have their lives attempted to be destroyed. Mm. I mean, with lawsuits, with reputation, with all kinds of stuff. So it was revealing Mm. And you mentioned you have a moment, different type of come to Jesus moment with your wife. Tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Uh, Well, she had, and again, when I say my wife is really chill and up for anything, she is. And that's why it made such a difference to me when she said, you know what? You can do what you want, 
but if you're still in the same denomination by summer, you'll be in an interfaith marriage. Mm. And because she doesn't give any ultimatums <laughs> any other time, I was like, whoa, this mm. is really serious. And I mean, part of it was, I think it's always more difficult for the spouse of the person who's going mm. through something. But in our case, it was not just that. It was the fact that I knew what I had to do to survive. And what I had to do to survive, I mean, I knew I couldn't read all this stuff. Mm. So I never read a single article about any of it, (laughs) but she did. Mm. And so she kind of knew things. And it helped me because not only did it not get in my head as much as it would have otherwise, but it also was easier for me not to be resentful of people I mean, I've had people who will come up and say, will you forgive me mm. for saying what? And I'm just like, I never knew you did. Wow. You know, but she did. Mm. <laughs> so she had a fuller yeah. picture of it than I did, I think. You know, one of the things that is really striking, you, you talk about the idea of being an accidental exile. And what struck me with that is that there are so many people who weren't even close to the halls of power and influence Mm -hmm. that refer to themselves or have been referred to others as exiles. Mm -hmm. Like, tell us what you mean by what does it mean to be an accidental exile and how do you maintain this sense of hope and optimism and belief in the church, even in spite of all that you experience? Well, I mean, I think it goes back to my home church, uh, again, saying doing the right thing, uh, whether they knew what they were doing or not. I mean, I was just taught the Bible from, you know, two years up. We didn't know there was children's ministry other than that. So I think I had a sense of the way that God works in the long term, which is often to bring a kind of crisis and then to rebuild and recreate out of that. And that's what you see are communities that are broken up, but then new communities that are reformed and are, are coming together. And that's that's exactly what I see happening right now. It's not fun. You know, nobody would choose to go through that, but nobody would choose to go through any crisis in his or her life. But almost everybody, if you say, where are the times that have God has really been active in ways that have changed your life. Hmm. It's usually in a time of crisis that they would have never chosen. They would not like to go through again. That's why I say the accidental. Accidental on our end, not on on God's. Gotcha. Well, you seem to be at a good place. And definitely in reflecting on the book, you talk with both a realism, but also a hopefulness. Just walk us through your journey of how you got there. And then related to that, how you found yourself at what you're currently doing at Christianity Today. Uh, Well, I mean, I decided, and it's always a hard thing to decide whether to stay with a particular ministry or to leave it. I think that's hard for everybody. And it's hard for me, particularly because I'm by nature a stayer. (laughs) You know, I have a sense of loyalty and institutional loyalty. In some ways, that was even an idol for me. So it was hard to do. But I determined, okay, I'm in a situation where I really don't think I can make things better Mm. in my situation. I don't think that I can do that. 
And so I need to carry out God's calling on my life in a different place. So came to Christianity Today and have been here ever since. But all of the stages of life, I mean, I've been a pastor, I've been a seminary professor, I've been a public policy CEO, I've been a dean, I've been editor-in-chief of Christianity. It's, it's all, I'm basically doing the same thing for the last 30 years, just in different locales and slightly different points of emphasis, but it's the same thing. Which is what? What is that same thing? I mean, I think fundamentally I'm a Bible teacher is what I'm called to be and to help people to put themselves into the storyline of Scripture and then to apply that storyline to the world around them. This is where you're from. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger and Mary Jo Clark. I also want to thank listeners Nathan Keel and Michelle Vergara for their support. And last but not least, Christianity Today for partnering with us and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.